Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 231, recorded February 28th, 2015. So today we're back in DC Comics, Volume 1. We are doing issues 28, 29, and 30. Yes, and two of them are focusing on specific characters. The stories are a little bit more focused around some of the characters that don't always get the limelight. So from that standpoint, I like two of the issues. Uh, Okay, I'll be curious to see which ones you think. I thought all three of them were kind of character-driven. Are you saying just one we, we normally get to see and the other two we don't? Yeah, I was actually talking about the Uhura one and the... Um, Barclay? No, uh, and oh. the McCoy. Oh, but, yeah. but you're right, Bear Claw, bear, it's a very Bear, bear Claw-centric right. one, too. So, right. you're right, you're right. Okay. And yeah. I gotta say, the McCoy one, which is the first one, it was kind of a slow story. Um, That's fine. Yeah, and... and... So, yeah, I, I hate ranking them, even yeah. though in my mind I always do. Hmm. I mean, so, I mean, if you were ranking them, would, out of these three, would you put the McCoy one as number one? I think I would put the Bear Claw one as number one. In my As head. far as my favorite story. Right. Yes, yeah. so would I. And then Uhura, and then McCoy's third. Mm. Okay. All right, all right, cool, interesting. All right, well, then I'll be curious to hear what you have to say about that one. Okay. All right, so uh, I guess I can go ahead and get us started off with issue 28 then. That's great. Okay. Oh, please. Issue 28, it came out July of 1986. It would have cost you a whopping 75 cents to get this beauty of an issue. It is entitled The Last Word. It is written by Diane Duane. Guest artist was Gray Moreau. Letterer is Augustin Maz. Colorist, Michelle Wolfman, and Robert Greenberger is the editor. The cover shows McCoy walking on a barren planet with his head down and looking all sad. Very Charlie Brown-esque. We see the Excelsior up above, and it looks like it's just about to take off and leave the good doctor. And then the caption reads, McCoy finally gets the last word. So why doesn't he look happy about it? So the story starts with McCoy being awoken by his computer, which lists all the tasks that he's been putting off and that he needs to accomplish. Groggedly and wishing for more sleep, he starts his day. Showering, dressing, eating breakfast, making it to the office, he moves through his tasks as if on autopilot. But all the while, he's checking up on the people he sees and follows up on their medical needs. He's always the doctor. In a staff meeting that morning, he recommends to Kirk that he switches a few crewmen on two different away missions. Kirk agrees. Later, a medical emergency gets McCoy to the transporter room. One of the away teams were attacked and is beaming up one of the injured crew members, along with Nurse Bryce and another security officer. When they materialize, Bryce informs the doctor that the attacked man is already dead when suddenly the other crewman passes out, though he showed no sign of injury. Later, the medical team is unable to find out what is wrong with the man. It looks like he has just given up on living. Kirk talks to McCoy and attempts to convince the doctor that it's not his fault about switching the two crew members, which happens to be these gentlemen. McCoy then gets a crazy idea to try to do a mind meld with the comatose crewman since he thinks that there's a few Spock marbles still rolling around in his head. It actually seems to work. At first, McCoy is in darkness, but then he grabs a stray lightning bolt that was whisking by. The bolt soon forms into the Caudius symbol, which then also looks more like a sword than the actual medical symbol with the snakes. Eventually, he finds the crewman, who is so struck with guilt for not protecting his friend that he's giving up on living. 
McCoy forces the man to relive the events on the planet and convinces him that his friend would want him to keep going and not to just die. The man agrees and he starts to wake up. Before McCoy leaves the mind meld world, Spock appears and informs the doctor to not try this again. When McCoy returns to the land of the living, the man is still asleep, but his vitals are starting to rise. Eventually, the man wakes up and requests to speak to McCoy again. Nurse Bryce is very confused on what on earth the man means by again. The end. How nice. A McCoy-centric story. I don't think we have enough of them. I agree. I love McCoy. Yeah. Although I gotta say, this one was a bit of a yawner to me. I was into it up until he decides to do the mind melt. (laughs) That's when when I lost it. Right. And then it became a lot like a, a few... I can't remember how many episodes back. One of the last times we did DC Comics, there was a story where everybody beamed down to the planet and went crazy. And, you know, there was a, a shot with Spock getting blown up by Looney Tune dynamite and things like that. Do you remember that one? Yeah, kind of. But this kind of reminded me of that, too, because it was most of the stories just kind of like in a in a dream world really right that he can just grab lightning out of the air and then turn it into a torch and then turn it into a sword yeah it's uh, a little unreal yeah well the idea that mccoy would be able to do mind melds just because of the time that he was the vessel of spock's katra is i think it's a bit of a stretch right i agree yeah, it should – I mean, I like the idea that he came up with – I mean, I like that mo- there's a little bit of Spock still in there. Mm-hmm. But I just can't buy that a human would be able to perform this because I always thought it was a, f- a physical power, not necessarily strictly a mental ability instead. Well, yeah, I, I think I know what you mean. I thought that Vulcans could do that because they just have some natural telepathic abilities. Which prob- probably comes from yeah some kind of something physical in their in their minds or something some physical difference in the way their their heads are put together so agree, yeah, I agree. and I mean and they're touch telepaths they're not like you know Deanna Troy who can just sense and read people I mean they had to actually be, be in contact contact which again stresses that this is this is more of a physical ability and not not strictly mental one right. In my mind. I mean, yeah. it's, it's all fake anyways, but you know yeah, what I'm well, saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> right, and Spock, I think, I think the Vulcans go through a lot of training to be able to do this kind of thing. It doesn't just happen. And right. McCoy's witnessed it happening many times, but he's no, had no training on how to do mind meld. Right. But I did like how when he was trying it, he was like, oh, you know what? This actually makes sense uh, medically that you would choose these spots on the on the cranium to push your way in you know i don't know how truthful any of what he was saying as far as nerve points and things like that but i did like that he was giving it a a medical spin right interesting you know what the spock cameo at the end i actually like too because it's not really spock it's just a manifestation of more of mccoy's mind uh, and whether it's really has anything to do with Spock being in there or not, or whether it's just McCoy's subconscious telling him, don't do this again, kind of thing. I thought yeah, it was pretty Could cool. be. Could be. As opposed to a Whoopi Goldberg, I'm just an echo of the Guinan you know. Uh, right. I'm, yeah, this is just an echo of the Spock you know. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I kind of like that, too. This The subconscious, the idea that the subconscious is saying, yeah, this is not a great idea. Right. Worked out okay this time, but let's not do this again. And, and I, and, you know, you, you hate to see stories where somebody just quotes, quote unquote, gives up on living. You know, we saw it in Star Wars Episode Three. Spoiler: if anybody hasn't watched that yet. But uh, and then here again, you know, this guy's buddy is just giving up on living. I mean, is that a real thing? Can can people do that? Just force uh, I, I, themselves into comas and then die. I, I know that older people, when they give up fighting. Sometimes they seem to go quickly, but this is a but young other person. There's stuff wrong with them, right? Uh, and they're already not stuff always. wrong with them usually. Uh, oh, really? Well, I don't know. 
I mean, there, there's lots of stories about, you know, somebody's wife dies and they're really old and they end up dying in the next month or two. Right. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, or, you know, eh, whatever. But uh, for a young person, no. And it's like, wait a minute, dude. It's a friend of yours. So what's the deal? I mean, we all have good friends and we all hate it when they pass. Uh, and that that's a lot of pain. But yeah, the idea that you'd give up living, right. that's like, wow, that's an extreme I reaction. Mean, he does feel guilty for it. I mean, so hopefully none of us will be in situations where we feel like we might have caused our friend's death. But I mean, it, it could have so happened. What, so why does he feel responsible? He didn't shoot the... Oh, because he froze. That's right, because he froze a little bit. Well, whatever. Yeah, I think it was is taking. It, there are several. I agree. There are several different bits of this that are hard to swallow. You just have to go with it. Right. But um, the beginning, when he's just walking around doing his daily tasks, you right. know, as mundane and boring as that is, was probably the highlight of the book for me. I I loved. It. He's just he's, in his brain. He's just like, oh god, I'm so tired. Just another day, you know. And yeah. then, but outwardly. <laughs> He's hey, normal. Crewman, crewman, whatever. How's your leg? Why don't you come on in and let me have a look at it again? And, sure. You know, he's just like this this very sociable doctor. And then in his mind, he's like the rest of us going, oh, I hate Mondays or whatever, you know. So Yeah, I completely I, agree. Like, yeah, that that is a good part. Because I think we can all agree that <laughs> we got a lot of things going through our heads that are, that are not that are not outwardly known. And really shouldn't be outwardly known. It's one of those good reasons that we don't raid each other's minds. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God, I just really don't feel like working today. When's t- get me to Friday? Uh, anyway, you were talking about the beginning, uh, mm-hmm. you know, his mundane life and everything. So when McCoy gets up, there's a picture of a brown-haired man in a blue uh, Starfleet uniform uh, holding a girl, a lady who's next to him. Uh, so there's right. a, a photo inside of his quarters. So I assume that's his daughter. That's probably not his wife, right? Because he doesn't like his wife. Right. Uh, I was assuming it was his daughter, but it, I guess it could be that salt vampire girl. Yeah. <laughs> that his ex-girlfriend or something. That was an ex-girlfriend, yeah. Yeah, maybe he's still holding a torch for her now that he she's gone. And... Oh, but, but, but the last time, what, Nancy, I think was the name. Last yeah. time he saw Nancy... She turned out to be a salt vampire. So I don't know if I, I... I know, but I just don't know if I'd want to see a picture of her uh, reminding me of that. Right. I'm assuming it's his daughter, but it could be his parents. Who knows? Parents. It doesn't necessarily have to even be him. No, it. No, but odds are it is. Yes. I don't know. It could be his parents when they were married or something. Uh, her parent, His parents his parent. were in Starfleet, and they uh, wore a blue tunic? They're just a blue shirt. I don't see any logo. Okay. Odds are it's McCoy. Odds are it's in the past. Odds are it's the daughter or the wife. But right. I think it's the daughter. Daughter, probably. Probably. But who knows? Who knows? But exactly. Good, good catch, though. So I thought the drawing of the Excelsior on the cover was terrible. Well, that's just because it's the Excelsior. Well, what do you. What? No, no, no. I have no no problem with the Excelsior. It's just the drawing is horrible. Yeah, the engineering section looks really weird. It's totally wrong. Like it's a box underneath or something. Right. It looks like it's got a little poop chute in the back or something. What is it? (laughs) Is that supposed to be a shuttle bay or something? Shuttle bays are on the top. I agree. The top back. On the top. Uh, well, the shuttle bays, yeah, the top of the engineering section in the back. Right, behind the nacelles. Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, the engineering section is totally wrong. The neck, there's almost no neck, you know, going up and attaching with a saucer section. Mm-hmm. It's just a really poor drawing. It is. It's a very weird drawing. Yeah. Yeah, proportions are all wrong. Right. And then, yeah, the whole, like, I, I just kept getting a Charlie Brown vibe, you know, with... Little Charlie Brown always, why does nobody like me? And walking around <laughs> with his head down. Well, oh, and then okay. It's McCoy in the same pose. Okay, so uh, let's go ahead and I, I'll just ask uh, 
a naive question. Uh, it says on the cover, McCoy finally gets the last word. Um, okay. I mean, he actually does utter the last word in the book. But is that what they're saying? I mean, what are they saying? The only thing I, I was wondering the same thing. The only thing I could come up with was in that staff meeting, McCoy was like, hey, why don't you switch those two crew members? And they're like, okay, meeting adjourned. That's the only thing that's I can think of. And that's why he would be oh. so sad because okay, he, he feels, feels guilty over guilty. it too. Yeah. Wow. That's the only thing I got out of that opening caption. Okay. I, I, can, I can understand that. But it's stretching it because it's not the last word, and there's no evidence that that was the end of the meeting, really. Yeah. It's like that was just one of the many tasks that they were talking about. I think they were hard up for a hook to put on the cover. And, you know, McCoy's always whining about not getting the last word with Spock arguments. So I think it's just uh, part of marketing. Right. I don't think it has much to do with the uh, with the story at all. But Right. But come on. You saw that in the newsstand when you dropped down three quarters? I, I probably would, because it makes it look like McCoy at least left the ship, or maybe he's leaving Starfleet, who knows. Right, yeah, it looks like the ship's leaving him. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, again, it would not be the first time they did a cover for marketing purposes that had very little directly to do with what's inside, but... With the old switcheroo. The old switcheroo, yes. <laughs> That's all I have to say about this one. Um, Do you have more? The only thing I have to say is that uh, the artwork, it's consistent with all the, uh, what I consider of DC Star Trek artwork. Yeah. Um, so I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just want to throw it out there that out of the three books we read, this the artwork in this one was probably my favorite cool except for the cover yeah not 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 going with the cover yeah well tom sutton and ricardo villagrand i mean they're doing most of they they do the art for most of these issues right right but this was this was a guest guest artist gray oh moreau. you're right you're right gray moreau gray moreau and I think he did a good job. I mean, he kept it consistent that if you were reading them, you might not even notice the artist changed. Right. Yeah, he did a pretty good job. Uh, except Kirk still has his perm hair. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, it's just the cover. But you, who did who did the cover? Who knows? Uh, yeah, it wasn't on the it wasn't on the um. Oh, it's uh. Brozowski and Villagrin. Oh, so they both worked on it? Yep. Okay. Cool. Anyways. All right. So, I just wanted to throw that out there. I was just wondering, is there a shot in here of the Excelsior in the book? In the book? I, I don't remember there being is. one. Mm-mm. Yeah. I okay. think it's all in the ship. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's weird. No establishing shot. That's, that's rare. Yeah, right. I was just wondering about uh, a second shot at drawing the ship and there is none okay cool okay so moving on to issue 29 yeah bear claw yeah okay so right so donovan's 100 percent right all three issues focus on a different crew member and this one uh ensign bear claw and the title is the trouble with bear claw and he does have some troubles uh, August 1986 is the published date. Writer is Tony Isabella. Artist, Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran. Letterer, Augustin Moss. Colorist, Michelle Wolfman. Editor, Robert Greenberger. The cover shows a dark silhouette of what appears to be five members of a landing party on the top of a hill attempting to defend themselves against gorilla-like aliens that are chasing them. There is a tattered flag on the hilltop with a huge blood-red planet with a ring system above and behind them. In front of the planet is an awkward drawing of the Excelsior. White text at the top reads, Stranded on a Hostile World, while red text at the bottom reads, Last Stand. Captain's log records Excelsior's shakedown cruise continues, and they have entered orbit around an uncharted planet just outside of known space. 
Magnetic storms on the surface makes use of transporters unwise. So Kirk has dispatched a landing party via shuttlecraft to the surface led by Commander Thimmon. While Thimmon gets to have all the fun, Kirk is buried in paperwork that Lieutenant Hathaway has piled on his desk. Sometime later on the planet, the landing party is fighting for its life. They are crawling to high ground to get away from the indigenous Alpha life form, who are chasing them in large numbers. They are gorilla-like, but with skin so thick that they can shrug off the volleys of phaser fire that Bear Claw is throwing at them. They are able to get to the lofty height and kick off many of their pursuers. Konam is grabbed by one of the mighty beasts and has to call on all of his Klingon strength and fierceness to fight it off. Bearclaw continues firing, though Lieutenant Jed, a Tellarite, tells him not to waste his time. Bearclaw says he is not firing at the beasts, but rather at the rock around the ledge. He is able to dislodge enough rock to knock down many of the advancing beasts. With the beasts beaten back temporarily, they take refuge in a cave. Before long, the gorilla creatures try to get in the cave in numbers. Against orders, Bearclaw fires at the cave's roof. He'd prefer to take a risk on cave-in than the certain death having his throat ripped out. The tumbling rocks crush the incoming horde and stops any others from advancing on the landing party. The Andorian commander of the landing party berates Bearclaw, but the caustic ensign points out that there is a breeze coming from inside the cave, which means there should be another way out. If he had not stopped them, they would be on them by now, ripping them to shreds. Bearclaw says, think of it as a retirement present. The commander tells Bearclaw he will be brought up on charges of gross insubordination. The Tellerate officer says there is no room for intolerance in Starfleet. Bearclaw shuts his mouth, but thinks terrible thoughts towards his superior officers. He saved the landing party twice with quick thinking. Can't they see that? He picks up the injured Konam as they head towards the hoped-for exit. As they walk, Bearclaw has a flashback to the start of the mission, when they were prepping the shuttle. Bearclaw suggested provisioning parachutes for an unspoken reason. He goes on to say a few more derogatory things about the Andorian commander, being old, and the Tellerate officer, and is overheard. That put Bearclaw on both senior officers' hit list. He thinks back on the trip down, where the shuttle lost control due to radiation emitting from the planet. They crash, and radiation now emitting from the shuttle keeps them from making repairs. It was Bearclaw who detected the deadly radiation from the ship, but made an oafish comment about getting the Tellerate pilot away from the ship before Porkface gets roasted. Arg. The Andorian commander's dressing down to Bearclaw was interrupted by the horde of ape-like natives coming at them at full run. They shoot them with phasers on heavy stun, but they have no effect. Bearclaw suggests they scramble up the hill just behind them to give them a more defensible position and time to contact the ship. They do so, which brings us back to where the landing party's story began. Bearclaw's thoughts return to the present, as they emerge from the opening in the mountainside. The ledge they come out onto is narrow. They still can't raise the ship due to interference. They think if they can get to a higher altitude, the radiation might weaken enough for a signal to get to the ship. Bearclaw volunteers to make the dangerous climb up the mountain. They have to get Konam medical attention or he will die. Commander Thimmon says it's too dangerous. They need Bearclaw there with them. Bearclaw goes against orders and tell them to post a guard in case the apes find a way through the opening. It's a tough climb, but Bearclaw makes it to the summit of the mountain. After repeated attempts, he is able to finally get through to the ship. Mr. Scott replies and organizes a second shuttle that will come down to their coordinates immediately and secure the opening to the cave first. Bearclaw relaxes a bit, now that he thinks his only worry is his impending court-martial. Unfortunately for him, he is very mistaken, as the shadow of an ape about to pounce looms over him. The battle ensues, man versus ape. 
Bearclaw realizes the ape is older, but still way stronger than he is. The ape severely hurts Bearclaw in the ribs, and he falls to the ground near the edge of the precipice. Feeling great pain, Bearclaw knows he won't be able to get up fast enough to sidestep the vicious creature as it charges in for the kill. Though his upper body is severely injured, he rolls onto his back and uses his legs to take the beast's full weight and flip it over his body and over the ledge. Despite his pain, Bearclaw rolls onto his stomach and has to look over the edge to see his opponent unconscious on the ground far below. Yes, he won. Bearclaw makes his way gingerly back down the mountain to his comrades. Meanwhile, an ape makes his way into the part of the cave where the landing party is. He knocks everyone else to the side as he advances on the commander. The ape seems to be trying to communicate with the commander, who is just saying, What the? But before the ape can make his next move, Bearclaw enters the cave and throws his full weight on the attacking ape. As they are hurtling backwards, Bearclaw puts the barrel of his phaser into the beast's mouth and blows him to bits. Later, back on the ship, and in sickbay, Commander Thimmon and Konam are visiting Bearclaw, who is unmoving in bed. Thimmon tells Bearclaw that the only way Lieutenant Jed would drop his charges was if Thimmon would drop his commendation he wanted to award Bearclaw. Chalk it up to experience, Bearclaw. Bearclaw makes yet another derogatory comment about Lieutenant Jed being promoted to fill a quota because he is an alien. Will he never learn? In response, Thimmon says, We are all aliens out here, and tells Bearclaw to stop trying so hard to be a bigot as well. They leave Bearclaw to get some rest. As they are leaving, Bearclaw thinks, Miserable aliens. Then, stupid Indian. There may be hope for Bearclaw yet. The end. They don't call themselves Indians anymore, so I guess that comes back in fashion in the 23rd century. (laughs) Uh, Apparently. Apparently. Good to know. Good to know. Another example, uh, like using the word tape for storage mediums in the future. Uh, They're using terminology of the time. (laughs) Anyways, what'd you think? I like this one a lot. I like this one too. There was a lot of action. Bearclaw is a jerk. A bona fide, 100% jerk. A bigot. That's an excellent word for him. He's a bigot. But he's also pretty quick thinking. He's a fighter. Right. So even though he doesn't like these people because of his narrow-mindedness or whatever, but uh, he still risks his life knowing that by saving him he's you know potentially hurting his career but he does it anyways because that's the right thing to do right yeah so he's quite a mixed bag mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, at the end lieutenant Thimmon, Timon, whatever his name is and konam are saying that bearclaw has great potential he just <laughs> has to get over uh, the nasty side of his personality which of course caused him to be quite a jerk when we first meet him where he actually hits um, Bryce. Right. Yeah, oh, because so. he blames her for her father's... He blames her for her father being in command of his of his father's ship, right? Right, so. somehow being responsible for his father's death. Yeah. yeah. So. Right. No, I, I, I'm 100% with you. And w- what I think I liked most about this story is that there isn't this instant switch of character where suddenly he sees the light and he changes because that's that's not how people change you change over time and i think you know since since his opening you know uh 30 issues ago 29 issues ago i mean he has come a long way as far as being doing the right thing you know even if it's for people he doesn't necessarily like right uh, so you know it's taken 29 issues but you know, we have seen some character development as opposed to what we see in a lot of issues where the ch- person has to change. You know, the, some one event changes him. And I'm right. kind of glad that this one event is not, not what changes him. He's getting there on his own as opposed to just some writing mechanic where you just suddenly make him somebody he's not. Right. 
Another good thing about it is, uh, but maybe this is something again that's thinking of uh, you know current people. Um, in Star Trek, everybody gets along in general, and mm-hmm. everybody's cool with everybody. There really isn't a lot. I mean, sometimes sometimes there's a little bit there uh, where Data was placed in command, and there was somebody that thought, oh, machines can't take command. But for the right. most part, everybody isn't a bigot. So they all right. accept each other. And maybe that's the way it is in the future. But if you take a look at <laughs> the way people operate nowadays, uh, you'd expect to have a few bear claws around. Right. In any is... group, in any large group of people. Yeah. But It's sad, but true. Yeah, and he says some amazingly boneheaded things. How did he get through? How did he get through uh, uh, the academy? It's like, geez. But you know what? In these comic books, we're seeing a lot of that racist stuff. I mean, because uh, the second in command on Spock's ship hates his guts. Oh yeah, she's a well. Okay, yeah, that's a good and point. Half breed. Well, there you go. Okay, so that's that's an excellent point. So there's another. But she's an officer. She's been around a while. Right. Another example of somebody in the Star Trek future where everything's idealized typically that, uh, you know, is a less than ideal person. Right. And we'll see in the next issue that there's a little bit of sexism still in the future, too. Ah. Yes. Uh, with Ohura's story. Gotcha. Right. Cool. Um, so remember how I told you uh, that last issue uh, out of the three was my favorite in the artwork department? Mm-hmm. So I really liked the artwork in this one, but there was one thing that just kept coming up that I didn't like, and I don't know where the artist got this from. It's even in the dialogue box, balloons. But why do they keep saying that Andorians have feathers and his hair is feathers, not hair in the story? Was he talking about the antennae? No, he's talking about his hair. And if you look at the close-ups of his hair, it is feathers. They're, it's not hair. It's actual feathers on his head. Oh, I see what you're saying. So where did that come from? The, I, the pictures of the original Star Trek Andorians, they they have the white wig on that I, that I expect Andorians to have. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I, totally, I did not get that at all. But yeah, look, I'm looking at his head. And it is kind of feathery, as opposed to hair. Right. And in the dialogue balloons, he does at one point say, "Don't, don't, don't let your feathers get in a ruffle or something like yeah, that." Yeah. Right. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, when they come up with that out of left field, because I don't remember. I mean, especially Enterprise, we got to see Andorians fairly often and pretty good makeup. I mean, even moving antennae, and. Um, and I don't remember there being it just being anything other than than white hair. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I even went back and pulled up pictures of uh, what is it, Journey to Babel or whatever that mm-hmm. had the Andorians. Right. It looks like a white wig, so I don't know where where they're getting the feather thing from. Okay. Well, I thought maybe you knew since you I were did not. on all things Taz. Well. <laughs> um. I, I don't I don't consider myself an expert, but uh, I think in this case, the books just pulled up, just came up with something out of left field, quite frankly. Right. This particular issue. Okay. Cool. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So um, I'm kind of wondering about the whole phaser thing. Whether they work or not, or what? Well, okay, <laughs> I, I was thinking, you know, maybe I, until the very end where Bearclaw, you know, very wisely shoved the phaser into the thing's mouth and, and fired. Um, right. I was starting to wonder if they ever tried the kill setting. It's like, oh, these are indigenous. Th- these creatures might have intelligence or something. We shouldn't kill them. So, yeah, yeah, you kill them. Yeah, they're about mm-hmm. to kill you. Yeah, you kill them. Um, but then obviously when Bearclaw shoved the phaser in, in the beast's mouth and, and pulled the trigger, yeah, Bearclaw was going to use kill. <laughs> right. <laughs> As well he should have, but, um, so I thought the whole, 
the fact that phasers would not be able to hurt them? It's like, boy, that's suspended disbelief, because that's BS. I mean, like a Jedi lightsaber, I've seen uh, episodes where Scotty's using a phaser to cut through metal. So, I really don't care how how strong their hide is. You're not going to be stronger than... uh, than not only steel, but whatever fancy metals they have in uh, in the future. I'm sorry. Right. I, I, I no, that's no, that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> but at least it allowed him to do the very smart thing of sticking the phaser in the mouth. Right. Yeah, I'll be honest. When that scene happened uh, with the um, the gorilla or ape, whatever he mm-hmm. is, about to to kill the commander. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't sure what happened in that scene because it, it looked like he was coming up really slow. Yeah. And then it, his hand was kind of out and I thought, oh, they've been, they're going to pull the old switcheroo that th- these apes were trying to give them something the whole time. And then. Or trying to communicate, at least at this point, start right. try, trying to communicate. So I thought that's what he was about to that, that, that the commander was finally figuring that out. And then Barclay jumps on there and, and blasts his head off. And I thought, oh my goodness, they're going to pull that card on Barkley. And he's not only did he bear claw, yeah, you know, yeah, bear claw. I keep calling him Barkley. Not only did he, you know, do all this stuff against the commander's wishes, but now he killed somebody. That's what I was thinking. Just show him something. That's what I was thinking. But no, at the end, Timon is like, oh yeah, I wanted to accommodate you. It's like, well, okay, I totally misinterpreted that panel. Mm. You know, (laughs) that that panel at the bottom of. 19. 19? Was it 19? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wow. <laughs> I I guess I totally misinterpreted that panel. Well, it's funny that you and I both misinterpreted it the same way. I know. That's funny. Well, and it also doesn't help that, like, on page 18, he's like, rrr, rrr, rrr. You know, like, he's, like, trying he's to trying talk. He's trying to talk. Yeah. And he just wants to talk to the commander and he was just pushing the people out of the way to get to him and then I was like oh he, here he's gonna we're gonna find out it's all been a misunderstanding right nope still could have been we just don't ever know yeah anyway yeah so uh, I like the fight on top of the mountain oh at the beginning yeah in the middle. Or no, I mean the the old one he's fighting at the, the, old at the top of the mountain right exactly yeah yeah. So that was pretty good. Um, no way. It, it was very Kirk-esque. <laughs> You're fighting somebody who's clearly superior to you strength-wise, but you still find a way to beat them. Right. The old, the old push them over the edge. Exactly. Um, so the Excelsior shuttles are looking pretty cool in this book, huh? Yeah, they're they're interesting, all right. They're sleeker than anything I've seen in Taws or even the uh, the Taws movies. Sleeker, sleeker. They look pretty bulky, but they're cool. they have a little nose and everything, which which they normally don't. Well, what, what I, I guess they have like well, the the fins and stuff. Is that what you're talking about? Well, when I say sleek, just because something's sleek doesn't mean it's small. Uh, I think it looks pretty cool looking, quite frankly. They're very wedgy shaped. I mean, they're almost like like the kind of cool that's like uh, like the Delta Flyer. I always loved the Delta Flyer in Voyager. Right. I thought that was a very sleek, very attractive uh, vessel, vessel. And I think um, I think these shuttles they're they're depicting here look pretty good too. Yeah, they, I just don't like the big uh, nacelles satellite satellite. Um dish on the top makes it I mean I guess it looks a little bit like the Millennium Falcon a little bit I guess I don't know oh yeah 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 that that does look crappy but if you look at the crash ship uh what page, page 11 page 11 is that it yeah the top of page 11 um mm-hmm. I think that looks pretty cool I like that yeah, upper that the upper fin kind of thing um I think it's a cool looking uh shuttle and by the way it's pretty stinking big that's a pretty big one. Right, yeah, because if you look at the front, there's there's that nose section, and then there's the 
the opening where the people are coming out of, and then yeah. the whole, you know, maybe four fifths of it is the rest, the rest of the ship, which is pretty big. Yeah, it looks like a, it looks like runabout size, if not bigger. Yeah, yeah. Which I don't remember there. I don't remember ever seeing runabout size shuttles, but this is the Excelsior. Yes, the future ship. Yeah. Anyway. All right, I have one more comment. Yes. Do you think Shatner read this book? Uh, okay, this should be interesting. Um, I don't know. Why, Donovan? Well, because, you know, the big big action scene in this book, not really action scene, but uh, a uh, pivotal moment in this book was uh, Bear Claw climbing up that mountain just with his fingertips. And then, you know, we see the Shat do it in part five. So I'm wondering if he if he read this book and it's like you know, oh when he's when he's climbing up Mount Capitan or El Capitan yeah, if, if this ensign can do it then then I uh, <laughs> Captain Kirk should be able to do it right perhaps perhaps or just having a really big mano a mano fight with a superior uh, gorilla creature a, a superior uh, opponent which is what Kirk had to do at the end of uh, what Search for Spock. Right, you know, with uh, with the uh, with Reverend Jim Clayton, Captain Doc Brown, Captain Doc, <laughs> any way you <laughs> want to say it. <laughs> yeah, so Klingon Fester, that's what I'm going to call him from now on. Klingon Fester, Fester. Oh, well, okay, yeah, okay. I got that. I didn't get that reference at first. It took me a second. <laughs> Boy, he has Anywho. been a lot of things. Yeah, and he just keeps keeps coming them keeps coming out with them. Yeah. What else you got, sir? Um, nothing. That's it. Nothing. Nothing. Right. Let's find out what the heck this Ahura story is about. Right. Then this one is entitled Ahura Story. Wow. They're not even hiding it anymore. No. All right. So this one is issue number thirty. It came out um, September of nineteen eighty-six. Uh, the writing staff, I think, is all different, so we will go through it again. Uh, Paul Cuppen, Paul Cooperberg is the writer. Carmen Infantino is the letter or penciler. Ricardo Villagran is the inker. Augustin Maas letterer. Michelle Wolfman colorist, and Robert Greenberger editor. All right, so the cover shows the. Original Taz era Enterprise swooping in behind a Klingon ship that's firing on the Galileo 7 shuttlecraft. And then there's a caption that says, Ahura's story. And just FYI, the shuttlecraft is like split into two different chunks. Uh, it's not coming back from that one. So the story starts with the captain's log informing us that the Excelsior is in orbit of the planet Tally, which is now starting to break up. He states that this is not the first time that many of the crew have been here, but it will be their last. Savick then informs the Admiral that she's picking up a signal from the Enterprise. Kirk and Hora share a glance and seem to have some sort of inside joke about the origin of the signal. And then we see a shot of the Enterprise. Yes, the Excelsior in this shot is in the style of the old-style Enterprise for some reason. Pinpoints the location of the signal. They find a floating shuttlecraft with the registration NCC-17017. Savick asks for the story, strictly for the purposes of creating a detailed report later. Ahura starts to tell the tale. A long time ago, when Ahura was first posted to the Enterprise, she was very aloof with the other crew members and did not converse with anyone except for when on duty. And even then, she was defensive and short with her co-workers. One day, when she was on duty, she picked up a signal from a, the nearby planet Tally, which was supposed to be completely uninhabited. She tells the captain that it is a Klingon signal. And then the Klingon commander hails them, demanding them to leave Klingon space. Kirk tries to inform the man that this is a mistake, but the Klingon cuts the communication. Kirk wants to lead an away team down to the planet. 
Ahura requests to travel along with them since there are some odd frequencies on the planet. Kirk refuses and leaves the bridge. Kelso and the other crew members laugh at her for wanting to be a soldier and not just sitting there answering the phone. Ahura tries to not retaliate and continues to work on those odd frequencies. Just as Kirk and his team are beaming down to the planet, she realizes that the frequencies are actually a trap and that once Kirk beams down, he will be cut off from the ship. She tries to get Scotty to abort the beaming, but it's too late. The away team is now on the planet and completely cut off from the ship's sensors. Ahura tries to work with Kelso on coming up with a way to get them back, but Kelso refuses to listen to a woman. She then takes it upon herself to steal a shuttle. When she arrives to the planet, she's nearly knocked out by the odd frequencies bombarding the place. She's able to create a jamming field using her communications tricorder. She then finds Kirk, Spock, and the others all knocked out. She cannot create a jammer large enough for them, so she goes off to find the source. In searching, she finds elite Klingon warriors. She eventually does find the equipment, and she rigs her communication equipment to explode and sets it inside of the machine. She then tries to leave while fighting the effects of the frequency. With only her will, she is able to stay conscious and make it far enough away from the factory before it explodes. She quickly gets into the shuttle and then gathers the rest of the crew and heads into orbit. Once in space, she's attacked by a Klingon ship. The hull of the shuttle is breached and everyone in there is left for dead. However, Scotty was able to beam the crew off of the shuttle while us readers were not looking. The day is saved and the Enterprise leaves the shuttle there to be found years later by the Excelsior. Back in the present, the planet Tally starts to fall apart. Scotty asks Uhura if she's going to watch. She says that she wants to remember it the way it was. The end. The way it was. Okay, so why did they leave the shuttle in the orbit? Uh, um, because it's required for the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it... I mean, it's, it's got a hole in the side, but it's a shuttle. I mean, those things can't be cheap. But, right, and it's still broadcasting the Enterprise frequency, which I thought was weird. Well, why would it still be broadcasting all these years later if they just left it to... I mean, why didn't the Klingons scavenge it? I completely agree. Anyway, so... Yeah, the story required it. Fine. Right. So can I ask a question? Yes. Why did Ahura change clothes? Excellent question. So while she's telling this story... She must have stood up from her chair right there on the bridge in front of everybody and completely clothing. stripped down and completely put on new clothing. Because at the beginning, she's wearing the Wrath of Khan uniforms that you should be seeing mm-hmm. in this era. Yep. And then at the end, after we're already coming back from the flashback, she's still wearing the uh, original Taz miniskirt. Exactly. Well, that's not the only inconsistency. And you actually pointed at some. <laughs> yeah. Like those were the two big ones for me. Yeah. The Enterprise being uh drawn instead of the Excelsior. Yes. And Ahura's wardrobe change. I got a third one for you. All right. Kirk in his original oh. Taz <laughs> uniform has wavy curly uh movie Kirk hair. Yes, I meant to mention that too. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, well, hold on, Kai. Come on, guys. His hair was totally different in the TV series. Yes, the, he's got the Kirk. He's got the the movie perm. Exactly, the movie perm Kirk hair, and he shouldn't. No. And another inconsistency, since we're just pointing those mm-hmm. out. Um, where's that shuttle bay located again? Oh, where did it come out of? Good question. Yeah, no, it should have came out of the shuttle bay, which is on top of the on top of the engineering section. Yeah. But instead, there's a little trap door, which I did not know about this, at the bottom of the Enterprise that just opens up and shuttles can fly out of it. I didn't know that. All this time watching Star Trek, I didn't know there was that trap door. Yeah. 
<laughs> Pretty interesting. <laughs> and again, uh, no, it's not right. It's just totally not right. Oh. And you didn't know about it because it didn't exist. Oh, oops. Oops. Now, one thing I will say good about the artistry is uh, when she's doing her Ohura commando thing on the planet. And that skirt? Oh, there's there's one particular panel uh, where her where it's kind of like a uh, Marilyn Monroe kind of moment where the skirt's <laughs> kind of flighting up a bit. Yeah, that's cute. All right. That's nice. <laughs> okay. I, like I don't know which which exact one you're talking about. But um, there's, it there's is on page 13. Lucky 13, yeah, upper right. Yeah. She's like, it's when she's first feeling the uh, effects of the frequency. Yes. Um, yep. Another inconsistency. She's holding mm-hmm. on to a tan-colored, um, kind of a, almost like a Walkman kind of thing, device. And that's the right. um, the sound, the the audio wave, radio, whatever thing that she's able to manipulate and um, counteract the uh, the high frequency thing that's that's paralyzing everybody else. Right. Very handy. Very nice little device. It's funny how it turns into a phaser, also. Oh yeah, she. So yeah, and then a grenade or something. How did, how did it explode uh, like that? Exactly. Let us count the ways. Do you, have you ever seen um, In Like Flint? Uh, no. Okay. Well, it's a it's an old spy movie that was I guess it was from the late sixties, and he had this lighter, like a Zippo lighter, that did everything. It like had it like had fifty eight functions or something like that. I mean, it was just amazing. So in like Derek Flint's lighter that could do everything, this little box can do everything. It's the right. it's the it's the freak the radio frequency generator. It's her phaser. I, couldn't they draw a phaser? Ugh. And then, mm-hmm. and then you're right. Uh, she's able to rig it to emit frequencies that is able to disrupt metal and cause it to explode. Right. And not so was it? Was it a chain reaction that it caused? She she definitely blew up the one that the device was sat at the foot of. Right. But then it seemed like. Other chunks of equipment blew up also. So right. um, absolutely the most amazing device I've ever seen since uh, Derek Flint's uh, lighter, mm-hmm. Zippo lighter. Right. And it's not just one page. I mean, she's firing the phaser in multiple panels. Right. And That's it's the same device. Device. Yeah. No, she, they never do change it. Yeah. Hmm. So I thought it was odd that uh, – in. We keep beating the story up. Yeah. Um, I, I re, from what I've read in the back of these issues and stuff, mm-hmm. this was not supposed to be the issue that got released. I really think they rushed this one because they had a writer set up to start being the ongoing writer. Mm-hmm. And then right at the last minute, he fell through. Oh. And that's why they had this one before the new regular writer starts in the next issue. Right. So I really, the way I feel it, and this is just speculation, but I kind of feel like they had to get an issue out that month and they got this artist who maybe was not that familiar with Star Trek and uh, just wrote up a story. And then some of the dialogue balloons, I think they might've had to fill in because, you know, the script probably said she meets up with Klingon warriors mm-hmm. and then he drew them like this, Oh, gotcha. <laughs> which looks nothing like any Klingon we've ever seen. And then Good in point. the dialogue balloon that she says, we saw Klingon warriors like we've never seen before uh-huh. or something like that. So it's like, <laughs> nice save. Nice save, indeed. Oh, that's a good point. That's a very – okay, I, I didn't read the end. All right. So the artist here, uh, Carmen uh, – I forgot his last name. But he's very famous, famous artist from way back when. Infantino. He was – yeah, he, uh, he actually was the artist of when they revived, when they revived Flash. Uh-huh. The, the Barry Allen version of Flash right. when they brought him when they created him yeah. that version he was the he was like the main artist at that time um, so you know he he he's he goes way back all that way I think therefore while he was the editor or the the publisher for DC Comics mm-hmm. 
for a short time. So, I mean, he, he's very well-renowned in the comic book world. He he also, after he left DC, he went to Marvel, <laughs> and he was the main artist for Star Wars for at least the first couple of years that Marvel had their Star Wars ongoing. Huh. So when I was reading this before I looked at who who drew it, I was like, man, this looks a lot like the old Star Wars stuff <laughs> where people didn't quite look like what they were supposed to look like, but close enough. Uh, but then it was in there in, in this very particular style, especially with his eyebrows and stuff <laughs> that I was like, this looks a lot like the, you know, the way Han looked in those old issues. And then I went back and looked at the front and I'm like, oh, that's why it's him. <laughs> so again, not not a knock on his artistry. I just, you know, he has his style. And it's not photorealistic of what we're used to seeing as far as what Star Trek and Star Wars is. Right, right. So Now, the inker, though, and the inker can yeah. only work with what the penciler gives him, though. That is Ricardo right. uh, Vilgran. Yep. So, right. I mean, he's he's one of the normal artists that's involved in this series. But... Right. Same with the colorist. <sighs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, it just seems like the... Uh, the inker works closer with the artist, but maybe that's not true. Uh, also, yeah. uh, another thing that's kind of interesting is on page five, where you first see Ahura coming on the bridge, um, mm-hmm. Kirk, who's talking to her, seems to be, uh, you know, seems to be reclining, yeah. relaxing, <laughs> reclining in a, in, a, in, a, in a lazy boy con or something. Uh, it almost looks like he's got the you know the shihatsu massage mode running or something. He looks very comfy. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> and I did think it was funny in that in that backstory when we're first when we're first back on the old Enterprise, mm-hmm. Sulu and some random ensign are the ones that try to put the moves on her. Oh, yeah. When she first got on board, right? I thought that was funny, and then. Um, well, Su- yeah, Sulu and whoever the the blue shirted guy was. Yeah, at first I was trying to figure out is that is that McCoy, you know, because it's a blue shirted guy right. and it doesn't quite look like anybody else. But she does call him Benson at some point. So yeah, yeah, he's some, an ensign, some ensign. some random ensign we never see again. Speaking of which, Gary Mitchell, Mr. Mitchell. Well, I don't know if his his name is probably not Gary, but Mr. Mitchell takes the con. From Kirk, when Kirk goes right. for the landing party thing. So was that Mitchell or Kelso? I thought it was Kelso. Oh, Mitchell. If, if, well, he, he said, uh, Kirk says, Mr. Mitchell, you have the con. Uh, so Kelso's the um, at the navigation station? Um, Kelso is the pilot. Okay. And then Mitchell was in the navigation seat. Uh, okay. Uh, in the... You know, in in the second pilot, right? Where no, well, uh, where no man's gone before, right? So, but the thing, I, I don't know. It probably wasn't Gary Mitchell, uh, because the, he's got a red tunic also, and Gary Mitchell right. always had a gold tunic. Well, everybody had a gold tunic in that one. Oh, episode. you're right. So you're right. That was that was going to be a good my point. That's my, a very good point. That was going to be my last point, actually. So, was Ohora in that original pilot? I don't think so. The the second pilot? I don't think she was. Okay. I don't remember her being okay. in it. Because I was going to make that point that, you know, when she first started, everybody should have been wearing the the gold because they hadn't brought in the colors yet until where No Man Has Gone Before. No, well, that was where No Man Has Gone Before. Well, she wasn't – Until the – So this might have been – yeah, so this was maybe somewhere be, be between where No Man Has Gone Before and, you know, the, 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 the first – Yeah, the Salt Vampire one where we first see her. I assume she was in the Salt Vampire one. Hmm, I'm really not sure. I assume she was. Well, that's when they introduced the the new uniform. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Good point. Okay. Okay. Um, and also Mitchell's got a red tunic on, so that's support. You know, you're an engineer, yeah. or you're a security guy, or you're some kind of miscellaneous support kind of right. thing. Um, the only kind of red shirts I remember seeing getting in the seat, you know, getting in the con, was either Scotty. Mm-hmm. Or rarely Ahura. Well, the new Ahura. Oh, right. I was going to say, I never remember her taking the con. Well, the new Ahura. The because as we know in that last episode, women can't be captains. <laughs> and that's why a woman has to switch bodies with Kirk. Ah, so bad. All right. That's actually my last comment. Okay. What else do you got? Um, 
I think at the beginning, I was starting to get annoyed for Savic. I mean, she had to ask like five times for someone to tell her what the heck was going on with the shuttlecraft. Yeah, and like everybody like being yeah. coy and yeah. looking at each other like, like hey, oh, she, she doesn't, doesn't know. know. Let's see if we can stretch this out. I would have been like, it! just tell me what the heck's, why is that shuttle there? And right. I still would have asked, at the end of the story, I still would have asked, why did you guys leave that shuttle there? That's an expensive shuttle. Why did you leave it there? I think you guys are all in trouble. Right, because <laughs> I'm going to put it in my report. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. Anyway. So what would you think about the shuttle being the same registry as the Galileo 7, but aside from the cover, it never actually says Galileo on the on the shuttle itself. Yeah. Uh, but it has the same registration. Yeah. Um, I... I don't know. I don't know. Because obviously we saw the, sh- the Galileo 7 again, and, and Uhura was already a member of the crew by the time we saw the Galileo 7 issue. Or... Right. Episode. Episode. So, did they leave that one there in orbit for no good reason and then get a replacement and gave that the same registry number? I don't know. Possibly. Possibly. That's the only explanation I can come up yeah. with. But why isn't it slash 7A? Hmm? As the registration. NCC 1701 slash 7A. I don't know. I don't know. Another thing I don't know is, why does the landing party wearing old-fashioned gun belts? Uh, oh, are yes. they? Tan-colored, very obvious, like, holsters. Nice. Yeah, a little bit more like, like the reboot movies. But the reboot movies, at least they're black. Right. So, you know, where, where's, get... where's the old hidden, the hidden belt with the magnetomic adhesion right. for the phasers? Right. Do you get like a little bit of a gold key vibe on some of this? Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right on this issue. I mean, they they basically they've given probably some headshots and stuff to a, a talented artist. Yeah. But who may not have a complete grasp of every nuance of that franchise and was just told to do it. Right. And he did, but he had to take some liberties with what what he thought it might look like. Yeah. Cool. Okay, that's it. Uh, th- three interesting issues. Yeah, yeah, no, they were all good. Yeah. I mean, they were all good in their own way. Right. I liked, I liked aspects of all of them. Yeah. Oh, oh, just the- one more little. Oh, go ahead. This is the last thing I just remembered. When you see the picture of the Klingon on the view mm-hmm. screen, he kind of looks like he's got. He looks more like a Romulan or a Vulcan than he looks like a Klingon. His ears appear. It's not the best picture. Oh, yeah. The clarity is not the best in the world, but it appears to have pointed ears. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. So, okay, that's it. I just had to get that out there too. So yes, right. three good issues, and looking forward to next week's uh, next three. And what are we doing next week? All right, so we'll be back next week. We're going to do uh, continue with DC Comics Volume One and do thirty-one through thirty-two. No, wait, 31 through 33. <laughs> I can count. Cool. Looking forward to it. Should be good. But we're getting kind of close to the end, too, of the DC Comics run, so we'll, we might have to slow down a little bit. Get Go get some more gold key out of the way. <laughs> exactly. We should definitely do a gold key. And, and maybe we should just do three the normal way. We'll um, see. Just to get some, you know, start to make a little bit of a dent in it. <laughs> uh, although I have no issue with doing the uh, doing the acting thing, except for the prep work to do that. Right. Uh, let's we'll 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 get back with everybody and let them know what we're doing. Okay. But uh, for now, definitely next week, DC Volume One. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for joining everybody, and talk to you next week. See you next time on the review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed 
are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.